I grew up in the capital of Azerbaijan, which is Baku. I was born in the capital city of Mongolia, which is called Ulaanbaatar. I grew up in Kampala, Uganda, to Christian parents. I grew up in a without religion background, and my parents, uh, they just very ordinary Chinese, and uh, you know, in China, most people influenced by the Buddhism culture. So I was brought up uh, from a Catholic home. My parents had previously served idols. So I identified myself as uh, Muslim uh, because uh, both of my parents are Muslim. My father was a military army officer and he was uh, supposed to be an atheist. My Catholic experience was that I didn't even know the God I was serving. At that point of my life, I was in search. I was trying to find God. I was looking for God, and I was looking God through various things, uh, including Islam. And then my father passed away when I was 13, and so that was a big tragic event uh, in my life, in my family. We started seeking about uh, meaning of life, and so why we are living, and what's the point of it? So then I left Uganda, and I went to a Japanese university. I started questioning my purpose and who I was and what I believed in and who God was and what he was doing in my life at that point. But it is hard for me to receive Jesus because I think Jesus, he is a Jewish, he's not Chinese, maybe he doesn't care about me. I was actually seeking and searching I, uh, until I was invited by this lady I wanted to date uh, to church. I went and the preacher preached from Romans 7. Uh, he said, uh, the things I want to do, I'm unable to do. The very things I do not want to do, I find myself doing. And so when he said, what a wretched man that I am, who saved me from this body of death. That was the cry of my heart. One of my friends, she sent me the, uh, the message and talking about the, the love chapter is uh, love is patient, love is kind. That is uh, the first time I, I seen a love is so, so deep. The message of love was so overwhelming that, hey, you, you can't do anything for me to love you more. Uh, I just love you and have loved you all, all, always. And all that you need is just to accept what I've had for you. I like that God, you're not your unchanging, that you are the same, you're the same God in Uganda, the same God here in Japan, the same God with me. And one day uh, I came to church and listened to, uh, to a message and uh, when the pastor asked if anyone wanted to make a commitment to Christ, I was one of them. I was secretly sitting in my place and just praying to Christ to be my Lord. And when he made the altar call, I ran to the front to give my life to Christ. I remember it was dark and me screaming out and saying, yes, this is the God I want. I want to hang on to this God that doesn't change. My name is Shereen Kazimov. My name is Ufu. My name is Rebecca Baville. My name is Walter Tredemdenjo. My name is Julius Kumsen, and Jesus Christ is my savior. Jesus Christ is my savior. My savior. My savior. Jesus Christ is my savior. Well, I just loved that video we watched a few minutes ago, the one with all of the different stories from around the world. Uh, I just love hearing uh, the, the stories of how God transforms people's lives. But I also loved that video because those folks are friends of mine. Those are all grad students at Wheaton College, which is where I worked before coming here to Christ Community Church. 
And one of the things that I really, really enjoyed about being there was getting to hang out with so many international students and hear their stories and, and get to know all of them. Uh, Michelle and I, we love to have those students over to our house and uh, have meals with them. Uh, one of the guys in the video, Sharin, who is from Azerbaijan, uh, we especially liked having him over uh, because in his culture, hospitality is really, really a big deal. And it's customary that if someone invites you over to your, their, your home, uh, that you're supposed to bring them a gift. So we just kept inviting him over and over and over again. <laughs> And that, he would always come, he'd have some treats for the kids and a box of chocolates and a bottle of wine. And I swear, that guy gave more flowers to my wife in the last couple of years than I did. So uh, Sharin is a great guy. Uh, really love getting to know him. Uh, every Wednesday when we would do chapel at Wheaton, afterwards we would have lunch with students. And very often uh, the international students were the, the primary people who showed up. And there would be times when I would be sitting there and I'd look around the table and there would be a Rwandan church planter and a theology student from Haiti and a, an Ecuadorian missionary and his wife who was from Britain and she was an engineer and uh, uh, a pastor from Egypt and a, uh, a French pastor who uh, grew up in Madagascar and a German theology student who grew up in Afghanistan and all sorts of just people from all over the world. Uh, and sometimes I was the only American at the table, although occasionally there was a Canadian there and that made me feel a little bit less weird, but then they start with all their boots and whatnot and I felt foreign again. But I, I really loved it. It was uh, so uh, formative for me, really helpful for me, because what it did was it got me on my little bubble. I, I got to hear about their experiences of what life in their cultures were like, what uh, church was like for them, what uh, life in their, their countries and their, their towns were like. And I got to realize that my way of thinking, my way of doing things is not the only way to do things. And that the problems that I face are not the only problems in the world. And even the problems that they face are not the same as people from a different part of the country. And to start to see that there's more going on than just sort of my little bubble was really important. Last week, Pastor Jim talked about just a, a single verse in the book of Romans. This week, I'd like to make up for that by talking about an entire book of the Bible. How does that sound? We are going to be tracing just a single theme through the book of Matthew. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to the book of Matthew. That's the first book in the New Testament. If you go uh, maybe uh, three quarters of the way into the Bible and open up, you should find Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these biographies of Jesus. And we're going to be in chapter 2 starting out. Uh, in the book of Matthew here. And when we read these biographies of Jesus, what we often call the Gospels, sometimes we assume that what's going on in the Gospels is simply them doing kind of just a, a report of the facts, sort of just bare bones description of like, here's what happened, then this happened, then this happened. It's just sort of like a, a, a news report of the events of Jesus' life. But there's actually more going on because each of the writers of the Gospel have a certain perspective on Jesus. They've got points they want to make about who Jesus is. And this is always how we tell stories, isn't it? You know, you, you can't tell everything about a story. So you include some details and you leave some out and you uh, portray one thing this way or that way. And it's not because you're making up the story. It's because you're trying to tell a true story for a certain point. Because maybe you want to entertain or you want to persuade someone of something or, or share your opinion about something. So you craft the story in a certain way. And that's exactly what Matthew is doing with his story about Jesus. And one of the big points that Matthew is trying to make about Jesus is that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. 
He is the fulfillment of the history of Israel. He, he often quotes the Old Testament and he says, look, look at this. Look at this way that Jesus fulfills this promise or this expectation or this institution from Israel. He is the culmination of this entire history of the Jewish people. And the reason he is making this point is because his original audience was a group of Jewish believers. They had come out of Judaism and their fellow Jewish brothers and sisters were criticizing them. And they were saying, why are you following this Jesus guy? He's making you less Jewish. And what Matthew wants to say is, no, 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 no. Actually, by following Jesus, you get deeper into your Jewish roots because he is the fulfillment of Judaism. So that's one of the major, major themes in the book of Matthew. But here's a really interesting thing, because Matthew has another theme that he sort of weaves through his story, and it kind of moves in the other direction. One of the things that Matthew really wants to do is move these Jewish Christians out of their Jewish cultural bubble. And he does this by sprinkling through his story these encounters between Jesus and non-Jewish people, people we call Gentiles. And if you were a first century Jew reading this book, these would just pop out at you and you'd notice them. And so what Matthew's trying to say by doing this is he's saying being a follower of Jesus doesn't make you less Jewish, but what it does do is it it makes it so that if you follow Jesus, he leads you out of the place where you're comfortable, the place where you understand the culture, the place where you feel at home, into the wider world that Jesus loves, into the world of the nations. Because Jesus isn't just the savior of the Jews, he's the savior of the whole world. Now, Most of us here are not Jewish by background, but I do think that the book of Matthew can do for us the same thing it did for the first audience. It can move us out of our safe bubbles where we feel at home, our our, our cultural world where we understand what's going on, to look at the world of the nations around us, the world that Jesus came to save. So here's how we're going to do this. We are going to trace just three moments here where Jesus interacts with someone from another culture outside of his. And the first instance we're going to look at is in chapter 2, and it's a story that you might be familiar with uh, if you've paid attention to any Christmas manger scenes. It's the story of the wise men or the magi. Chapter 2, verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, "'Where is the one who has been born the king of the Jews?' We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all of the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly, and he found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go, search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. It's just a total lie here. After they had heard the king, the Magi went on their way, and the star that they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child and his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. And then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Here's what I want us to get from this story. The treasures of the nations 
belong to Jesus. The treasures of the nations belong to Jesus. Okay, who are these guys? Who are these Magi? Because let's be honest, this is kind of a weird story, isn't it? I mean, when I was a kid and I sort of, you know, heard the Christmas stuff and I would imagine this in my own mind, the way I imagined it was this. These guys show up late at night and it's like just hours after Jesus has been born. It's just enough time for Mary to sort of get herself cleaned up, put on a fresh change of clothes, that, that blue dress she's wearing in all of the, the pictures, and maybe put on a little makeup because she always looks lovely in all the nativity scenes, you know, not like she's done, you know, 20 hours of labor right before. And, and these guys show up and they get off their camels and it's... Uh, Gandalf, Obi-Wan, and Dumbledore standing there. And for some reason, these guys are just so eager to give these really fancy gifts to this baby that they just met. And it's sort of like if you've got like an eccentric rich relative and they buy your baby weird gifts, you know, they say, oh, I got a gift for your kid. And you're like, oh, like a teddy bear or Dr. Seuss book or something. And you open it up and it's like a a gold-plated pocket watch. And you're like, this is really nice, but I don't know how my three-month-old is going to use this, you know? And so they drop off these gifts, and then they just head out to some other country never to be seen again. And so for the rest of Jesus' life, Mary and Joseph have to keep explaining why these random guys are in all of his baby pictures. It's just like a a strange story. So let's try to get some clarity on this. Uh, First, a few clarifications, some misconceptions to, to clean up. Uh, contrary to the way it's typically portrayed, there's no reason to think that there were just three magi. We, we don't really know how many there were. Uh, there are three gifts that were named, but uh, if you were going to be traveling from one country to another country in that day, you probably would go with more, three, more than three people in your party. So it was probably a, a bigger group than that. Also, they didn't show up on the night that Jesus was born. Uh, based on details later in the passage, we can guess that Jesus was probably around two years old. Uh, This is not the mother-baby wing of the hospital. Jesus is probably running around, babbling, making silly faces and stuff like that. And and the Magi were not standing there with the shepherds, you know, on Christmas Day. And they also weren't kings. I know we sing that song, We Three Kings, at Christmas time, but nothing here says that they were kings. So who were these guys? Uh, The Magi, uh, that's where we get the word magician from, Uh, and don't think like David Blaine or Siegfried and Roy or anything like that. These are are court advisors from Babylon or Persia. If you've read the book of Daniel, you've encountered the Magi before. They're characters in the story of Daniel. Uh, These guys are, are the equivalent to the advisors to a president or the president's cabinet. They are experts in all things both political and religious, because in those days, those were intertwined. These are policy experts. They're intelligent, well-educated, powerful men. But the thing that's significant in this story is that they're foreigners. These are international visitors who've come from another culture. And so in this story, they're kind of stand-ins for all of the people groups outside of Israel. They represent all of the nations coming to bring their worship to Jesus, the king. Have you ever wondered why there are so many different cultures in the world? Like, why did God make a world where there are so many different groups of people who do things in such different ways? You know, why do some people speak Mandarin and other people speak Arabic? Why do some cultures emphasize individual rights and others emphasize group harmony? Why do some societies value innovation and change and others value stability and, and tradition? Why do we have shawarma and salsa and pad thai and pierogies? That one's easy to answer. It's to make my tummy happy. Um, But different cultures complicate things, don't they? It makes it hard for us to communicate and interact when you've got different customs and ways of thinking and and, and living in the world. It would be so much simpler for life on planet Earth if there was one culture and we all shared it, right? So why are there multiple cultures? 
Well, I think the answer to that question is rooted in God's purpose for human beings. When God first made human beings, he gave us a job to do. He said, go out into the world and fill the world with my glory. We were supposed to take the raw material that God had made and draw all the potential of it to to, to make things of the world. We were created to create. And so that's what human beings do. We do it automatically. We make things. We organize our communities. We pattern our lives in different ways. We have all of these ways of making something out of the world. And what God's intention was for all of those things to be different reflections of what he is like. To show the world his goodness and his beauty and his love in all sorts of different ways. But here's the thing. God is far too big for any one person or one community to get a handle on all of him. There is an endless variety of ways to talk about God. And so we need thousands of cultures, millions of subcultures to really get all the angles on him. It's almost like there's, there's people that are standing over here in this spot and they see this perspective of God and they've got a great view of one angle of who he is, but there are things about him that are harder for them to see. But there are people standing over here and they can see this angle on what God is like, but they can't see this. And so there are people here and here and all around and together all of us can see so much more and express so much more of what God is like than anyone one of us could do on our own. God delights in diversity. He loves having multiple cultures because when he sees those cultures, he sees such tremendous potential to show different angles on what he is like. There's something in our cultures that cause us to search. This is what's going on with the Magi. They are studying the stars, which is something that's really significant for their culture and society. And we don't know exactly what it means that they saw a star that rose and how they put that together with, you know, there's going to be a king that's being born. It's kind of a mystery that isn't totally explained. But what we know is that that was significant to them and their culture. And it started them on a search. It started them on a quest to find the truth. And every culture has these sorts of impulses and, 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 and questions that make them say, we're, we're going to chase this down. We're going to search what is real. So these magi go out to find this king. But they don't have the whole picture. Uh, they come to Jerusalem, and Herod's scholars have to explain things to them from the Bible in order for them to finish their quest. Uh, cultural insights and impulses aren't enough to get us to God. We need revelation. We need a word from God to tell us where the longings that come from our hearts and our culture end up, where we can find the answers. But they get this word from God, and ultimately these magi find Jesus. And here's where it all culminates. They bring the treasures of their culture, the, the things that they have that are the best and the most beautiful things to offer, and they lay them at the feet of this king. They take the treasures of their world and offer it as worship to Jesus. This is where all cultures find their fulfillment. When what we have in our culture is used to express honor and praise to God. One of the ways this shows up is simply in the variety of ways that different people pray and worship in gatherings like this. Because there isn't just one way to worship God. Uh, Just take, for example, our uh, night of prayer that's coming up tonight that we call Ignite. Uh, We we have this week of prayer. We kick it off with this prayer service. We do this a a couple of times a year because we know here that if uh, we don't pray, nothing of eternal significance is going to happen. We can plan and we can work hard, but if we don't pray, if God doesn't show up, it's all a waste of time. And we know from experience that when we do pray, God does show up. So that's why we dedicate time to this each year. 
But the way we do this is specific to our culture. So what we do is we get our band and we've got the guitars and the drums and the bass and the keyboards and the singers and we crank up the music and we sing our hearts out because that's what makes sense to us in our culture. And then we pray and sometimes it's someone who's standing up front and praying on behalf of all of us. Sometimes we get into smaller groups of people and we each take turn praying a short prayer out loud and that's what makes sense in our culture. But if you're in another culture, it might go a different way. Um, but before I move on to that, let me make a little aside here. Uh, thinking about Ignite tonight, some of you uh, are parents of young children. And you are thinking, I would love to come out to the service tonight, but I don't know what to do with my kids because my kid can't sit still for that long and they're going to wiggle in it. I don't know if they're going to get it. Let, let me just give you this encouragement. One of the best things you can do for your children is to bring them to worship services. Uh, One of the best ways to teach children how to worship God is to let them see you worship God and to let them see the other people in their church community worship God. So if you've got a a kid and you're thinking, I want to come out to to Ignite, come out to whatever part of it you can and bring your children along. And the rest of us, we're not going to mind having a a kid there. In fact, it's actually going to benefit us because I... Just speaking from personal experience, to see children worship God is really inspiring to me to continue to worship God. So Jesus said, let the little children come. Why don't we practice that tonight? So enough of the aside. If we were in another culture, we might do our prayer and worship in a different way. Uh, In in some churches, they pray prayers that are, are written prayers, prayers that are thoughtfully crafted, beautiful prayers that have been passed down through the centuries because those prayers make them feel connected to the long history of the movement of Jesus throughout the ages. If you were in Africa and you were in a worship service or a prayer service, you would not be staying in your seats like this. You would be dancing, you would be singing, you would be moving all around because in Africa they figure, God gave us bodies, why don't we use those to worship God too? If you were in Korea, uh, you might be getting up at 5 a.m. for an early morning prayer service every single day. This is actually really common. So if you're like, I don't know if I can get out to Ignite tonight, just be thankful you're not in Korea. And we're not asking you to come out tomorrow morning at 5. Uh, But at those prayer services, uh, everybody will gather. And instead of taking turns praying, they will all cry out at once. I've been in gatherings like this, and it's incredible. It's almost as if the hearts of every person are broken open, and together this, this river of prayer comes out of the community, and as one, they cry out with their needs to God. It's amazing. Uh, or I think about uh, one of the, the places where we're involved as a church in Southeast Asia. Uh, it's a, uh, an incredible story of what's going on there. There's this church planning movement that has started, and it began with just some secret conversations in uh, some hotel rooms, talking to, to believers there about how they could reach one of the largest unreached people groups in the world that's in their area. And from these conversations, uh, a movement of church planning started, and now there are over 200,000 people involved in this, and there's no way anything's going to stop it. It's really an incredible story. But because this is an area that is uh, primarily Muslim and there hasn't been a history of Christianity there, they don't have songs that are in their cultural language to use in their worship services. And so what they decided to do, rather than borrowing something from another culture to use in their services, they said, why don't we write our own music? Why don't we write our own uh, words for this? And so they went to a group of of former Sufi Muslims, and the Sufi Muslims are known for their poetry and their art, and they said, this is what you're good at. Why don't you write something that that works in our culture, and we'll set it to traditional tunes from our country, and that's what we'll use in our service. 
Because they, it, what it does is it brings the, the cultural treasures that were once used uh, to, to, uh, to, for other purposes, it now brings it into honoring Jesus and, and, and lifting up his name through something that speaks the heart language of those people. It's incredible. Every one of these expressions of prayer and worship is precious to God because they all get these different angles on what life with God is like. Each one of them presents the treasures of their culture to Jesus. Let's look at another place in Matthew where Jesus interacts with Gentiles, non-Jewish people. Let's turn to chapter 15. I know that the weekly welcome says chapter 14, but that's because I uh, had a typo when I gave my outline to the guys uh, this week. But it's chapter 15, and we're going to be in verse 29. Uh, But let me give you a little context of what's going on here. Uh, In the previous chapter, Jesus has performed one of his most famous miracles. He fed over 5,000 people with a handful of dinner rolls and a couple of sardines. And now this was a a miracle that he performed in Israel to a mostly Jewish audience. And for a Jewish audience, this miracle had all sorts of of connotations. Uh, Jesus was acting like Moses. Because Moses, when uh, he first uh, led the people of Israel out of Egypt, one of the miracles that God performed through him was uh, giving bread from heaven to, to feed all of the people. So when Jesus comes along and he's this great teacher and he's giving out miraculous bread, they all think, Moses, Moses, Moses. It evokes the founding of their nation. It's this very Jewish miracle with these Jewish people. But then after that happens, Jesus leaves the territory of Israel and he goes through Tyre and Sidon, which are a Gentile region. And as he re-enters Israel, he comes through a part of Galilee that has a lot of Gentiles in it. And then this happens. Verse 29. Jesus left there and went along the Sea of Galilee. Then he went up on a mountainside and sat down. Great crowds came to him, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and laid them at his feet, and he healed them. The people were amazed when they saw the mute speaking, the cripple made well, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they praised the God of Israel. Jesus called his disciples to to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days, and they have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry, or they may collapse on the way. His disciple answers, where will we get enough bread in this remote place to feed such a crowd? As if they forgot what happened last week. How many loaves do you have, Jesus asked. Seven, they replied, and a few small fish. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. Then he took the seven loaves and the fish, and when he had given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and they in turn to the people, and they all ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketful of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was 4,000 men besides women and children. After Jesus had sent the crowd away, he got into the boat and went to the vicinity of Magadan. All right, so when you read this, you're thinking, hang on. Wait just a second. Didn't he just do this one? Like, what, why is he repeating this miracle? Is it sort of like a band when they go on tour everywhere they go? They got to play their greatest hit. Like, if your journey, you don't stop believing ever for years or decades. You, like, you just have to do it because the people want it here and now. Is that what's happening here? Uh, not exactly. I think Jesus is making a really deliberate point here. It's because he's with Gentiles He repeats this miracle. And what he's trying to say is, yes, I came for the people of Israel, but my mission is so much bigger than that. He's doing this distinctively Jewish miracle, going up on a mountain and then giving miraculous bread for people 
of other nations. He's saying, I came for all people. I want to be like Moses for all people. I want to set all people free and lead them into a relationship with God. And when he does this, that's exactly what happens. Look at verse 31. After Jesus healed all these people, it says, the people were amazed and they praised the God of Israel. And the reason that happened is because Jesus took seriously their needs and he met their needs. And so that's the second thing I want you to see here. The needs of the nations belong to Jesus. Just as the treasures of the nations belong to him, so do the needs of the nations. You see, when God created human beings to express his glory and his love through our cultures, human beings didn't stick with that plan. Instead of saying, oh, yeah, God, we're going to fill the world with your glory, we said, why don't we fill the world with our glory? Instead of saying, we're going to build cultures that revolve around you, we said, we'll build cultures that revolve around us and our, our needs and our desires. And the result of this is that every single culture is warped. Every single culture has distortions from God's intentions for humanity. And the result of these distortions is suffering. Sometimes when we think about sin, we think of it as sort of a, an individual thing. It's something that one person commits against another person. And that's true. That is what sin is. But sin is actually more than that. Because human beings live in community... Our sin is expressed not just at the level of individual actions, but through groups and through institutions. Sin generates what some people call systemic injustice or structural evil. That's the evil that works through the systems and the structures of a society. So there are times when people suffer not from the direct effects of another person's action, but because of the ways that our society is warped and the structures are shaped by sin and by evil. And just as there are a huge variety of ways to express God's goodness and truth and beauty, there are also a huge variety of ways that structural evil causes suffering. Sometimes structural evil shows up in prejudice or conflict between different groups in a society. Sometimes it shows up in laws and customs that favor the powerful and exploit the weak. It shows up in economic disparity where some people have way, way, way more than they need and other people have way, way, way less than they need. It shows up in unjust laws that allow people to get away with evil. It shows up in corruption that uh, prevents just laws from being enforced. And it shows up in thousands of other ways. And it's this society-level sin that generates the, the suffering that we see on such a massive scale in the world. This is the reason why there are millions of refugees fleeing from places like Syria and Somalia and Afghanistan. Uh, they're fleeing from violence and poverty in their own countries that's generated by structural evil. Or take uh, an example of one of the countries where Christ Community Partners in Sierra Leone. Sierra Leone is one of the poorest countries in the world, but it should be one of the richest. It's got huge uh, natural resources, including diamonds and gold and titanium ore and all sorts of minerals. But that hasn't translated to wealth for the people in the country. 70% of the population is in poverty. And the, the country has the highest mortality rate for children under the age of five of any country in the world. And more than that, the presence of these resources actually has generated violence. It, be, between 1991 and 2002, there was a terrible civil war in the country. Uh, about 50,000 people were killed and over a million people were displaced from their homes. And this is in a country that has less people than the Chicago metro area. And the reason the war happened was people were trying to get their hands on the, the, the diamonds and the resources in the land. And they were actually using the, the, the funds that came from some of those diamonds to, to fuel the conflict. 
All of this is the result of not just individual sins, although there are many people who committed individual sins, it's also the result of systemic injustice, unjust laws and corrupt governments and the instability left when the European colonizers uh, went back to Europe. And now a decade later, Sierra Leone has been hit by another crisis, Ebola. Uh, 13,000 cases of Ebola in the country, over 4,000 deaths. Entire families, villages wiped out. And again, this is more than just a natural disaster. Uh, it, no one's sin caused the outbreak, but structural evil, systemic injustice made the suffering worse. It's from everything, from the, the reasons that pharmaceutical companies haven't done much research into Ebola is because most of the people who suffer from it are poor, so it's not economically lucrative to look into it. Uh, internal politics affect it, where uh, people are fighting over things so that uh, resources that they do have don't get to people who need it. Uh, corruption makes it so that funds that come into the country don't all go to treating the disease. And this structural evil makes the suffering worse. There are people who are suffering terribly because of this. And that's just one place in the world. This is happening all over the place. And when Jesus sees what's going on for people like this, look at how he reacts. Verse 32, he says, I have compassion for these people. They have nothing to eat. I don't want to send them away hungry. They may collapse on the way. When Jesus sees people in need, he has compassion on them. Uh, one of my favorite words in, in Greek is the word for compassion. It's actually the word for intestines, believe it or not. Uh, a lot of times, if you've ever read the King James Version, it's translated the bowels of mercy, which is a very strange translation. Uh, but the idea is that compassion is something you feel in your gut. You know, that, that, that feeling in the pit of your stomach when you see another person in need and you want to do something about it. That is what Jesus feels. I mean, think about that. Jesus, God in the flesh, is made sick to his stomach by human suffering. God is compassionate. He cares deep down at the core of who he is about people who are in pain. And why wouldn't he? Because God, when he sees people, sees people he made in his image, people he made for his glory, people he made to be his works of art, to, to be full of dignity and authority, people he created to, to, to go out into the world and to bring uh, beauty to the world. And when he sees people suffering and being destroyed by the effects of sin and death, it breaks his heart. He cares. He's, and what he says is, I'm not just going to leave you on your own to suffer. He says, your needs are going to become my needs. The things that, that, that hurt you are going to be a problem for me. I'm going to take your concerns on as my own, and I'm going to do something about it. That is the heart of Jesus. And it should be our heart, too. I know for me this can be really difficult, and part of the reason for that is because there's so many things going on in the world, aren't there? When you read the news and you, you, you can't know about everything that's there, and you can't even care about everything that's there, I just don't have the emotional wherewithal to handle all of it. So what do you do when things seem so huge and you don't even know where to begin? Here, here's what I would suggest. Just pick two things. Just start off with two things. Pick one global issue, one place, and one local issue. And say, I'm going to get to know those issues really, really well. I'm going to get to know what's going on in that place really, really well. So that I can, I can serve, I can give, I can, I can get to know people who are affected by those things, and I can really understand what's going on there. It doesn't mean that you ignore everything else that's going on in the world, but you, you start to dig into at least something. 
and having one that's local and one that's global is kind of an important aspect to this because there are two ways to sort of be stuck in our own world. Uh, we can be so concerned about things that are just nearby us uh, that we forget about the scope and the severity of suffering around the world. But we can also be so concerned about something that's really distant from us that we miss the injustice and the pain that's going on right next door. So have both a global and a local focus. And if you don't know where to start, here's what you should do. Just pick one of the six places that Christ Community invests in. Just, go, just find the, your favorite flag out there and just say, I'm going to get to know about that one. I'm going to find out what's going on in Brazil or Czech Republic or wherever, and I'm going to dig into it. And then find one of our community impact partners and say, I'm going to start serving and giving and being a part of, of that in our local community. And get to know those things. Start to develop a heart like Jesus by exposing yourself to the needs of other people. Because the needs of the nations belong to Jesus. And that includes the greatest need of all, sin. Not only do the treasures of the nations belong to him and the needs of the nations belong to him, but the sins of the nations belong to Jesus. Last week, Jim talked about our global crisis of sin and death. He talked about how all people have sinned, you and me, every single one of us. And that sin separates us from God. It cuts us off from God, the source of life. And because of that, we suffer death. We suffer spiritual death. We suffer physical death. And if nothing is done about it, we will suffer an eternal death. Put as bluntly as I can, if we are left on our own, we all go to hell. We suffer eternal death. But here's the good news. When Jesus sees that, he has compassion on that too. He cares about where we are headed and he wants to stop it. Now, if you ask me, I think this is kind of a crazy thing. Because in this situation, we are not the innocent victims. We are not innocent sufferers in this. We have brought the problem on ourselves. We are the ones who are guilty. And so for Jesus to care about that is, is just mind-boggling. That he would say, something that you deserve, I'm going to try to stop. And so this is what he does. He says, I'm going to take that problem on me. Let the penalty that you have earned come on me. What they deserved, all of the consequences that they brought on themselves, bring it on me. Put it on me. And when that happens, Jesus, the one person who never sinned, who didn't deserve to be cut off from God, who, who didn't deserve to die, he suffers death. God himself puts himself in, in our place and suffers what we deserve so that we wouldn't have to. And the book of Matthew tells how this happened. It tells the story of how Jesus went to the cross and how he died. It tells how Jesus was killed for our sin. And it's really interesting because as, Jesus, as Matthew tells this story, when he gets to the moment where Jesus actually dies on the cross, he throws in another detail about a Gentile who was there. The very first person to react to Jesus after he was killed on the cross is found in Matthew 27, verse 54. Let me read that to you. When the centurion, this is a Roman soldier, and those who were with him, who were guarding Jesus, saw the earthquake and all that had happened when Jesus died, they were terrified, and they exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. So here's this guy. This is a Roman soldier and his buddies that are around him. They have probably executed hundreds of criminals in this same way. But here at this moment, when they see Jesus die, for some reason their eyes are open, and they realize this, is, this guy is no mere criminal. This guy is something more. There's something different is going on here. This is the son of God. 
Can you imagine what that moment would have been like for those guys? To have suddenly realized that you had just participated in killing the son of God. It must have shaken them to the core. But what's also remarkable about this is that the very first person to realize the significance of Jesus' death is a foreigner. He's a Roman. He's an outsider. He's someone from another nation. And I think Matthew includes this here to make that point. He wants to show that Jesus' death is for everybody. It's for the whole world, no matter where they're from or what they have done. It's for everybody. The book of Revelation unpacks this. We're given a window into what people in heaven are singing as they praise Jesus. And it says this, You are worthy because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. Think about what that means. Think about what that means about how much Jesus loves people, how much he loves every single person. He, he loves you and me enough to die for us. And not just you and me, but people from every single people group on the planet. How do you respond to a love like that? Well, for some of you, you need to respond by accepting it for yourself. Or saying, you know what, that actually was for me. Because Jesus, he went to death for you. He wants to free you from sin. He wants to free you from suffering and from an eternity apart from him. And now Jesus is calling to you. He's saying, come to me, respond. Let me be your rescuer. Let me be your ruler. Let me have your life. And so some of you are wrestling with that question of, do you want to take that step and trust Jesus with your life and with your eternity? And he's calling to you right now. Will you respond to him? Many of you here have taken that step. You've crossed that line. And you love the fact that Jesus is in your life. He's forgiven your sins. His, his power is at work in you. And you've got this hope for eternity. And you love it. And you praise him for it. But for some of you, that has only stayed good news for you rather than being good news for the people around you. And you've got to make that move. That, that move needs to happen in your heart where you start to realize, if Jesus loved me enough to die for me, it means he also loved these people enough to die for them. He loved them that much. And that is the reason why Matthew's book ends like this. This is the very last thing that Matthew says. Uh, Matthew 28, starting in verse 18. Jesus came to the disciples and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Matthew gives his audience this final push out of their, their little bubble out into the wider world. And he's doing the same for us. We're going to unpack what this means next week, what it means for us to be people on a mission from Jesus. But for now, let me just sum it up this way. If the treasures of the nations belong to Jesus, if the needs of the nations belong to Jesus, and the sins of the nations belong to Jesus, then the people of Jesus belong to the nations. If you want to stay in your own little world, don't follow Jesus. Because here's what happens if you do. You start to become like him. You start to see the world through his eyes. You start to care about what he cares about. You, his desires become your desires. You start to love the things and the people that he loves. And when you see how far Jesus went to save people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, guess what happens? You start to think, how far can I go to make sure they know about that? When you see how much he sacrificed for other people, you start to consider what risks and what sacrifice you can make for those same people to make sure that they hear about this hope. 
When Jesus comes into your life, things start to change. Your heart starts to become like his heart. And his heart is as big as the world. Let's take some time to pray now. The, the band is going to come out. We're going to sing another song. During that time, we're going to take our gifts and our offerings. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we praise you because you are the God of all people, of every nation. That you are the God who created us and gave us culture so that we could worship you and praise you in, in a huge variety of ways. And we love that. Jesus, we praise you because you are the one who loved us enough, who loved us and not just us, but people from every nation enough that you would die for us, that you would give your life to save us. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come into our hearts and make our hearts more like Jesus. Give us love for the people around us, for the world around us. Give us eyes to see the needs of the people around us. Give us eyes to see the glories of the cultures around us that, that are, are meant to be given in, in worship. And make us willing to sacrifice in order to reach those people. God, I, I want to pray for people here who have not yet accepted your offer of salvation. God, I, I know that there are people in this room who are wrestling with this. Maybe they heard what we talked about last week and they've been, it's been nagging them all week long. God, I pray for them right now. That, that you would move in their hearts, that they would surrender to you, that they would give up, that, that whatever questions they have, that you would answer them or clear them away, whatever barriers in the way that you would knock them down and that you would show them just how much you love them, that you would win their hearts over and that they would give themselves to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.